from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us now prepare our hearts and our minds for worship. My name is Susan Farah, and I'm currently serving as an elder on the session here at First Presbyterian. Would you please join me in the call to worship? We have gathered in this place of worship. He first, first gathered us in his love. We come as we are with our faith and our doubt, because Jesus first came to us with his love. We come with what we have to share with God and with one another. Because we've just first with Come, let us worship God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50, which can be found on page 14 in the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew the sword, sat down, and put the goods into baskets but throughout the bed. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray together. God, you enlighten our souls with the gift of your wisdom. We pray now that on this morning that that same spirit might come upon us, might open our hearts and our minds as we listen to your word and as we consider your will in our lives. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. As one who does a lot of teaching, I tend to be interested in how others teach. What techniques or strategies do they use? What type of learning styles do they cater to? Do they use a lecture or do they lead discussions? And perhaps most importantly, do they use PowerPoint slides, whiteboards, or the good and faithful chalkboard? It's because of this that when I turn to the Gospels, I find myself listening not only to what Jesus says, but how he says it. And even, uh, and what is abundantly clear is that even as we just uh, flip through the pages of the Gospels, is that Jesus' go-to teaching technique is the parable. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parables make up 35% of all of the things that Jesus reportedly had said. In the Gospel of Matthew, from which we read this morning, the number is even higher. 43% of what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is in the form of a parable. Now, parables are curious little teaching tools. They are essentially metaphors, as Anne Henley explained. They are essentially metaphors extended into little narratives or to short stories. They teach by way of comparison. In fact, the word parable in Greek literally means to set one thing beside another. So in, in encountering a parable then, we're invited to see one thing in terms of another. We're invited to see faith in terms of mustard seeds, forgiveness in terms of prodigal sons reunited with their dads, and grace in terms of banquet feasts. But what is particularly interesting from a teacher's perspective about the way Jesus used parables is that when he gives a parable, he often does not leave us with an explanation. The parable is said, the story is told, the comparison is made, and then Jesus moves on. The parable is left to linger in our minds. Now, I can't help but wonder if the disciples ever got annoyed with Jesus for teaching in parables. You can only almost hear them, enough already, they might say, just tell us the point. Just tell us what this story is really about. I wonder if we might not feel the same sometimes sitting here in church. Couldn't Jesus have just given us a nice, straightforward 18-minute TED Talk rather than teasing us with these endless stories about treasures and pearls and fishes and nets? But as tends to be the case, Jesus knows what he's doing. For it is the open-endedness of the parable in which we, that which we find that its pedagogical power and maybe even its theological potential. They don't give us parables. They don't give us rules to follow and doctrines to memorize, but rather they tease our mind into reflection. They ask us to consider who do we identify with in these stories, and where do we find God in the metaphor? They open up for us interpretive possibilities, and they encourage us to read the parable again, but this time from a different angle. In short, the parables give us permission as interpreters of the Bible to say, I wonder, and then to grant us space to play with the possibilities. So this morning, I thought we might wonder together a little bit about these three short parables from the Gospel of Matthew. I wonder if we might read them again, but each time from a different angle. 
Now, the first two parables that we read this morning clearly go together. They each tell a story about a person who has found something of enormous value and then goes and sells everything that he has in order to acquire that one thing of value. The third is about fishes and nets, and as it turns out, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I have to say here that, uh, in, in, as a matter of full disclosure, I had hoped Anne Henley would fully address the third parable as part of the children's message so that I could skip it. Uh, but for some reason, she chose not to go into its details. So I, I suppose then I'll have to say something about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But let me save that for a moment and turn first to the two other parables about pearls and treasures. In commentaries and in sermons, these two parables are typically read as a lesson about the radical nature of discipleship. In this reading, the pearl and the treasure are the gospel, or maybe they're God himself. And the action of giving up everything illustrates for us the appropriate response of God's call on our lives. These, parable, these parables tell us in miniature what is writ large throughout the gospels as a whole. Faith demands an all-in response. Just as the merchant sells all that he has to purchase the pearl, so too does Peter leave everything behind to follow Christ. Just as the man liquidates his assets to buy the field in which the treasure is found, so too do James and John, the sons of Zebedee, leave their father and their fishing boats to follow Jesus. The figures in these parables do precisely what the rich young ruler is unwilling to do just a few pages later in Matthew's gospel, and that is sell all of his possessions to acquire treasure in heaven. In this reading of the parable, or this reading of the parable is often featured in sermons that urge congregations on to deeper commitment to Christ, whether that's in the form of more regular worship attendance or volunteering at that summer's VBS or perhaps in the annual giving season. Oh, what great parables for the pledge season these are. However, this is not the end of the story, and it need not be the only angle from which we read it. For you see, in the first two parables, the decision to sell everything and buy the, tre uh, the, the treasure and the pearl hangs on the ability of the man and the merchant to properly assess the value of the thing that they had found. They need to know that this is a worthwhile treasure and a worthwhile pearl before they give everything up to acquire it. And this might seem like a rather obvious point. Pearls are valuable, treasures are valuable, but it's not always as easy to assess value in the world as we think. Consider, for instance, the common everyday violin. To the untrained eye, like my own, a violin is just a violin. Now, sure, there are more expensive violins and less expensive violins. I did a quick internet search uh, for this this past week, and you can get a, a, an, a violin at a local music store for as little as $200 or as much as $10,000. But for me, a violin is just a violin. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the one and the other. In fact, I would go so far to say that the value of a violin is based primarily on the skill of the person playing it. But recently at Sotheby's in New York, a violin was on auction and sold for a whopping $45 million. That's $45 million. 
You see, this was just not any other violin. This was a 300-year-old violin made by Antonio Stradivari, perhaps the greatest craftsman of stringed instruments in the history of the world. Since he died in 1737, no one has been able to even come close to duplicating the quality and richness of the sound of his violins and violas. The few who are lucky, or perhaps rich, enough to own a Stradivarius know the instrument is worth the cost of obtaining it. And if you happen to have $45 million to spend on a stringed instrument, you better be able to tell the difference between a Stradivarius and the violin I found on eBay for $64.95. <laughs> the protagonists in our parables also must have the ability to properly assess the value of what they find. The per if the pearl was a fake, if it was nothing more than a polished piece of plastic, if the treasure turned out to consist of those little discs of chocolate with silver and gold foil over it, like my brother and I used to eat at Easter, if that was true, then one wouldn't have sold everything to buy it. In fact, if one had sold everything to buy the fake pearl or the chocolate treasure, it would not be an act of faithfulness, but an act of foolishness. Only if the pearl is a true pearl, only if the treasure is of pure gold, only if the violin is an actual Stradivarius does one sell everything to take possession of it. So the question in this reading that, that these parables pose to us is not if we're willing to be committed in our faith. In, in my experience of this congregation, folks are willing to be committed to their faith. I think the question this parable poses to us is do we have the ability to properly assess value in our lives? And I think there are a couple reasons why assessing the value of our faith is sometimes not so easy to do. And I just want to name two of them. The first reason is that there are other valuable things in life to seek after and to sacrifice for. It might be a promotion at work, another degree, a good school for our kids, an active retirement, an exciting dating life, perhaps a PR at tomorrow's Peachtree Road Race. These aren't bad things. In fact, these things have inherent and practical value. And these parables that we read this morning actually don't tell us to stop seeking those things. If you remember, the parable is not about a merchant who goes out wandering aimlessly and then happens upon a valuable pearl. The, par the parable we read is not about a, a merchant who goes out looking for costume trinkets. And then when he finds a real pearl, he gets excited and then goes and sells everything to buy it. No, the person in our parable goes out looking for fine pearls. He's already looking for something that is valuable, that he would have sold and, and, and uh, earned a profit on. It's in this context, it's in looking for valuable fine pearls that he comes across a pearl of great value. The challenge for him then is not settling for the many pine, fine pearls. It's not, it's not overestimating their value or being so, so consumed by his search for them that he has no energy or resources left to invest in the pearl of great price. The same, I think, is true for us. We seek after many fine pearls in life, and this parable doesn't critique that effort, and neither do I. 
but it does make us wonder. After searching for our fine pearls, do we have time or energy left for searching after the pearl of the gospel? Is our search for fine pearls so intense and so unfocused that we come to our faith or we come even here to these pews on a Sunday morning so utterly exhausted that we have nothing left to give? In our busy and full and fulfilling lives, it can be challenging for us to assess the gospel as the most valuable among all the fine pearls that we seek. Now, the second reason I think it's sometimes difficult to properly assess the value of the gospel in our lives is that I think from time to time we have been misled about what the value of the gospel actually is. In certain forms of Christianity, it is often the case that the value of the gospel is described in terms of what it offers us in the next life. Whether we go to heaven or hell, whether we face divine wrath or eternal life, whether we are saved or not saved, our third parable from this morning, and here I have to speak about it, seems to play into this idea. We hear of good fish being separated from bad fish, the righteous from the evil. We are warned about a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable and in many other versions of the gospel that we encounter in our culture, the value of faith is nothing more than fire insurance for the afterlife. The story is told of a man who had been on the outs with the church ever since his college years. The church, he thought, was too concerned with the rules, too concerned about who was being saved and who wasn't, so he decided he had enough with it and left, never to return again. Now, he had a dad, and his dad would work on him and would invite him to come back to church, and one day, the son eventually gave in and decided to come back to a Sunday morning service, and he did so, and he came in a little bit late because he wanted, of course, to avoid the passing of the peace and the other such elements of the service. But he slipped in the back and sat down. And just as he sat down, the congregation was in the middle of their prayer of confession. And the prayer of confession that they prayed that morning sounded a lot like the prayer of confession we prayed this morning. It went something like this. We have done those things which we ought not to have done, and we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And there is no health in us. The man hearing this, this word, leaned back in his pew, he smiled, and he said to himself, this sounds like my kind of crowd. The good news of the gospel is not just about what happens next, but what happens now. The promise of God's abundant love invites us to be honest about our faults and our sins, whereas the world teaches us to hide these things to cover them up, to leave them off our resume for fear of embarrassment or, or even worse, for fear of rejection. The gospel gives us permission to be utterly honest, knowing that in Christ we are forgiven, we are loved, and we are received as God's beloved children. The value of the gospel is not just that it gives us freedom from the penalty of sin in the next life, but that it gives us freedom to live honestly and authentically in the image of God here in this life. The value of the gospel is not just worth dying for, but it's worth living for. So then, how do we remind ourselves of these true and deep valuations of the gospel in the midst of the sorts of misunderstandings and pressures that we face in the world? 
I think maybe the answer is right here in these parables, but it takes looking at them again and seeing them from a different angle. We typically read these parables and we think of ourselves as the merchant or the man. We are the one looking after and seeking and searching for and having this sacrifice for these valuable things that we find in God and in the gospel. But what if it were the other way around? What if the man and the merchant is God and we are the treasure and the pearl? then these parables tell a different story, don't they? They tell us about God's all-in effort to seek after and to acquire us as his children. These parables then tell a story not about how we value things, but how God has come to value us, how God sees a value in us even though we often doubt it and even though the world around us does not often affirm it. If we read the parables from this angle then, that story about the fish at the end, it's not about eternal salvation and good fish and bad fish and heaven and hell, but it's about how God is able to search through our lives and is willing to keep the good and discard the bad. The value, the true value of these parables is that they are parables of the cross, many metaphors about how God so loved the world and gave us his only son. And for this, we are truly grateful. Amen.
My friends, we've learned this morning that Jesus uses parables to invite us to see things in new ways, reminds us that faith demands an all-in response and calls us to assess where we invest our time and our energy. And we learn from these parables that the good news of the gospel is not just for next, but for right now. So as you go out into the world this week, may God open your eyes and your hearts to see where God is at work in the world in new ways. May God give us the courage to commit all into our faith. And may God fill us with peace and hope to live the gospel promise, not just for later, but for right now. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace today and every day. Amen. Thank you.